0: CEE, Central Europe Explained, an IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group. Episode 36, Pride Despite Prejudice, Sarajevo First Rainbow March in 2019. Promoting empowerment, dignity and equality for LGBTQIA plus community, the Pride Month honours queer history. Pride finds its roots in the U.S., commemorating the Stonewall Riots, which occurred in June 1969 in New York City. As a result, many World Pride events occur at this time of the year. The march claims human rights and celebrates the impact that the queer community has had in the world. Fifty years after Stonewall, in 2019, Sarajevo celebrated its first Rainbow March. The event has highlighted the undergoing path of Bosnia and Herzegovina for ensuring human rights. The country was the last of Europe and Western Balkans to organize a march, but the first which happened without any violence in the streets. Welcome to CEE, Central Europe Explained. My name is Emma Hunterberry, podcast producer and research associate at the IDEM. Today, I'm very happy to welcome Emina Boschnak. Executive Director at Sarajevo Open Centre and Co-Chair of ILGA Europe. Based on equality and opportunities for everyone, the Sarajevo Open Centre works to advance human rights, especially for LGBTQIA plus people and women fighting actively against discrimination. So hi Amina and thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hello, Emma, and I'm happy to be a part of this conversation.
0: I want to start with the fact that in 2019, this is Sarajevo Open Centre, which organized the Pride March in the Bosnian capital. Over the past years, steps Forward were made for the rights, tolerance, and freedom of the Bosnian queer community. Indeed, in 2016, the government adopted a comprehensive discrimination law. Four years ago, Sarajevo hosted its first Pride, which is, of course, a success for democratization and for human rights. But nevertheless, I am wondering why did it take so long for Bosnia and Herzegovina to launch a Pride March?
1: Well, uh, before I I go into the answer to your uh, last question, I think it's important to clarify that Although Sarajevo Open Center did uh, work for years on LGBTI human rights, and although we might have spurred the initial idea of uh, having the, the Pride take place in 2019 in Sarevo, we were not the organizers. We were basically a part of a much larger body of, of activists, the so-called organizing committee of the first Bosnian and Herzegovinian Pride March, that apart from, from several uh, members of Sara Open Center, also consisted of activists coming from different parts of Bosnia and Herzegovina, from Bainaluka, from Tuzla, uh, from I think uh, Mostar, all over the place. And basically, somehow, the idea was that the first Pride March should not be only something that is, is a direct result of one organization's work, but rather an idea and collaboration between different activists. And basically, I think uh, the way that we wanted to do it was maybe a part of the answer on why it took so long. But I think the main factor was that when you look at the region of Western Balkans, if you look to, to all the countries that were part of Yugoslavia once, we actually started with the LGBT activism much, much uh, later on because of the war in the 90s. And of course, if you look at the history of LGBTQ activism in Croatia and Slovenia, in Slovenia, it started in the early 80s even. So we kind of had some catching up to do. And uh, a lot of focus of activists was to actually work on so many different levels, to work directly with them for the community to work with different institutions to try to change, the, um, I would say, the general uh, sentiment and opinion towards lesbians, gay, bisexual, transgender, and intersex and queer people, and then to actually have a pride march. If you look at our shorter history of LGBT activism in Bosnia and Herzegovina, its milestones were uh, in a way marked by violence. So we wanted to wait for the moment where the political situation, can be right. We waited for one year after the election in 2018. We wanted to have institutions that are at least on some level sensitized towards the issues so that they can protect the participants. And we waited for the community to be more visible and ready to have a Pride March. So I think so many factors contributed to the fact that we might be the last country in Western Balkans to have the first Pride March but definitely the way uh, it took place and the number of people who joined, I think it was the biggest uh, first pride march in the region. So I guess we might be the last, but I think we did something right in in a sense. It happened without uh, any incidents. And uh, I think it elicited a lot of positive reactions from the community, from the allies, but generally from, from people within our society. Mm
0: -hmm. I read that there were around 1,000 policemen involved, actually, for 3,000 participants, which is quite a large number of both participants and and the police, uh, because I guess it took place in a very conservative environment where social factor played a big role. Um, I read there were also an anti-protest, which happened on the same day. Do you think by then the city was ready? I mean, you said it's, it's actually a success story what happened, but how did you manage to organize it logistically? Were you actually protected by public authorities or did you have to organize a lot of your own security for the people uh, in the space, in the city?
1: I mean, this is, um, and, and thank you for this question. I mean, it's um, the answer to that is a really complicated answer. I think... It still remains one of the key questions for the PRIDE organizers here in in Bosnia and Herzegovina. I think there was a lot of work invested into cooperating with the police officers and different security agencies throughout the years prior to PRIDE march happening in 2019 that actually, I think, in a way, maybe sensitized them too much in the sense that they wanted to make sure that no incident, even the smallest one takes place. So I think that may account for um, part of that large number of police officers. And sometimes you have to take this first step. I think we we did take into account that we want the community to be safe, but uh, you know, if we wait for the, our society to be completely open and accepting, then I don't think we actually have a reason to have a pride march. So <laughs> we also we also kind of thought about that. But I think one key question that still remains in the paradigm of security and police thinking is that yes, security is the most important, but in a sense, having that much police officers also sends or. I would say reinforces a very strong prejudice that still exists. And that is that somehow LGBT people require special rights, therefore they require special protection. So this kind of, especially when you see all the, all the media reports and pictures and visuals that accompany them, sometimes the police officers and the number of of the police officers that were involved in securing the event, Uh, put in the first place, which I don't think is the most important thing about the Pride. But again, uh, I think there needs to be a very strong balance in terms of really making sure that the event is secure, that the institutions that are responsible for the security are doing their job, but that they're not overdoing it. (laughs) That's that's an important, I think, um, factor. And the problem that we still have is that our local laws on public assembly, which are uh, basically on the cantonal level, are very much open for the public institutions, but also for the police to have a very wide discretionary right to actually give some of this security um, efforts to kind of outsource them to the organizers themselves. Basically, the, the, the line of thinking is Well, if you want to organize the Pride March, then you also have to kind of pay for it to be secure, which is in a way a very faulty logic, because if there's something that is going to happen, it's not the organizer's fault. It's the fault of those who are potential attackers. So why should we as the community or Pride organizers be burdened with extra financial or logistical or I don't know, sometimes it especially in the first Pride march, but Pride organizers still have these problems because the laws haven't changed, that a lot of these burdens are are then upon the organizers. And if you look at how the committee works, it's an informal body, it's it's a group of activists that might not necessarily have all the financial and other means to kind of back up the security of these events, which are then still required by local authorities and the police. Basically, in a way... The police is doing a good job in securing, in terms of that there are no attacks, but overdoing it in terms of that, I really don't know if we really need that that level of security. We need the security, but it's it's just a question of balance. And there's a very still strong question about what the pride organizers have to undertake themselves in in, in the sense that, you know, there are financial burdens that sometimes become uh, at the level of several tens of thousands of, of euros which might not be available and so on and so on but to, to, to go back to your question about the first prime march we actually started planning it one year before the date that it took place and i think it was needed to figure out all of the political environment to analyze it to analyze all the potential uh, enemies or those who be anti-Pride anti March, to think about what's the right messaging to our community, to let them know that they will feel safe and that this is going to be a positive event, not another event where potentially violence is going to happen. And just coordinating between so many different activists is always, I would say, a sweet challenge. So we took our time in the preparations for the first uh, Pride March. Currently, I'm not uh, in the committee. There are a lot of uh, more younger people that are part of it. So I think and I hope that it takes them a lot, lot less to, to organize and prepare everything. But for the first one, we knew that it's going to be critical that we make it a success story, as you said. So, yeah. Preparations were 365 days ahead.
0: (laughs) And yeah, I guess this time, as you said, was definitely needed. You also mentioned this inequality in the sense that for the organizer, it's even harder because of what we are tackling, um, queer rights, LGBTQI rights, and the fact that people from the community need at the end, special rights and special protections. And then we must look at it with equity, actually, because the imbalances are even stronger. I mean, laws are improving and increasing, changing. In April of this year, the Municipal Court of Sarajevo has spoken the first sentence because of discrimination based on sexual orientation, identity, So this brought a question to my mind, which is, have the living conditions of the queer community actually involved in the sense that that having rights on paper does not necessarily mean rights in practice? And then I'm wondering, how is the community concretely living in Bosnia and Herzegovina? Do they still have to be in the closet, so to say, or are things shifting?
1: Things are definitely shifting. I I think this uh, level of progress and the speed of progress in terms of changing laws and policies are much faster and do not always translate into a better quality of life for for, um, LGBTIQ people. That is, I think, true here in Bosnia and Herzegovina as it is everywhere else. But I've been a part of the LGBTIQ movement for Almost 15 years now, and um, I'm happy to say that I see certain progress. But it's now it's not equally, I would say, uh, distributed across different generations. For example, I think with everything that was done so far, that we created at least an atmosphere for uh, younger queer people to build up on that and to feel more free and open, and to also really even deconstruct our own ideas uh, of what it means to be an, a lesbian or a gay person. We have much more, much more young people who identify as pansexual or just queer or questioning, which is, I think, it was our long-term goal that this is where we wanted to, to see the community and people moving into really looking at gender identity or sexual identities in a more broader way than what my generation uh, kind of was used to. And this, I think, uh, at least I hope the legacy that these um, years of activism and people, different people in the movement and different organizations working towards this contributed to. Uh, I think several people from, well, not several, but a lot less people from my generation and generation of people that are older than me are, I think, feeling less of this change and reaping the benefits of it. I still know, know so many people um, who, who are older, who belong to the community, who actually, I don't think their lives changed for them personally, in a way. I don't know if they feel that uh, they should come out or that they feel that it's okay. But generally, I think they, they can sense that the situation is a bit different. So the problem is that a lot of people actually left the country because uh, for so many reasons, of course, economical reasons might be on, on top of the list. But also when, you know, thinking about your future and there are certain risks when you live with your, your partner. I don't know, if if you want, if you're thinking about having a family, all of these things then start to complicate your life in here in Bosnia-Herzegovina, and that is still true. I think we have managed to kind of create this at least more open public debate about sexuality and and queer sexuality and identities but there's still so many things that that need to change and this relates to especially trans people uh, to intersex people to to the issue of same-sex partnership and yeah uh, we still still have to come to that moment where prides are you know just big happy events with people with different identities being Free to be themselves, um, and not this issue of push and pull with with the local authorities. So yeah, I mean things are changing, um, maybe not as fast as I would love them to change, or people from the community will love them to change. But you know, in the grand scheme of things, if I look at how long it takes, how long it took in other countries, and um, how long it takes for cis women to to actually uh, again fight for the rights that they have won maybe 50 years ago or even more i can be i think proud of the progress that we're seeing so now it's also a question how do we keep this progress alive and how do we keep moving on because there are always certain uh actors and 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 people who want to regress
0: so you just said things need to change and the biggest challenge might be that the one who have to implement this change are already the one suffering from this imbalance and injustice, which is existing. For example, I'm, you know, always a bit careful when you say like, oh, how must queer people be more accepted? Because why should they be more accepted as part of their rights? They, we, everybody must be able to be who they want to be. Exactly. And, I mean, we just talked about the queer community. I was wondering, how is it for the rest of the country, of people who are not part, especially of the community, and might not be also support the community? How do you see them reacting to these steps forwards in the sense that what action exists to establish a normalization process towards LGBTQIA people?
1: Supporters played very strong role in the organization of the first pride march for example and uh, you mentioned the counter protests that actually took place one was a day before and the other one was basically at the same time that where the pride was happening and i think we needed the supporters on that day and they showed up because they in a sense wanted of course to be there for their friends for their i don't know brothers and sisters or Uh, colleagues uh, or acquaintances They wanted to be there, but they also wanted to be there on the first Pride March because they wanted to support the truth that there is such a variety of sexual orientations and gender identities. And they wanted to be on the side of this as opposed to the the counter protest and um, opening up different questions about the position and the rights of LGBT and queer people In Bosnia and Herzegovina, we're also contributing to wider discussion on generally how we view sexuality and how we view identities, but, for example, ethnic and religious identities are still very important here. So how come that it's only those identities are related to good things and tradition uh, in, in, in a very conservative view and not you know, any open discussion about identities that are also very important to everyone that relate to our gender and sexuality. And hopefully we kind of made them think that they also need to take, well, not take a side, but also that they need to engage into thinking, well, h- how do we want to think about both of those things, sexuality and gender in, in our country? Do we, you know, lean just into this very... uh traditional, well, again, I, I don't think it's tradition, it's conservatism, where people want to to kind of preserve something that might not ever been there in the first place. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. I think it's a big myth and invention. I think it's about authenticity, it's about being truthful to ourselves in, in terms of a topic that still most people feel like they cannot openly talk about. So I think, yeah, in a way... Uh, as much as we're maybe on the on the surface trying to let's call it normalize queer and and um, LGBTI identities, in a way I think we're doing a more subversive thing of opening up this discussion in our society
0: about acceptance towards identities, if I'm correct, towards
1: identities and thinking honestly about one's sexuality and and uh, gender identity. You know, is it just this given thing or can it change over time? What is it influenced by what is my gender identity and my sexuality? And am I being honest to myself about it? You know, am I exploring it? Do I feel free to explore it and so on? I think these are the questions that are also very, very important for us.
0: Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, There is another topic I would like to touch upon, which is somehow more regional and focused on the Western Balkans. In a sense that I'm wondering about the impact of such event as Pride or normalization of the LGBTQI community in the region, which aims to bring human rights further. I watched the documentary, Let There Be Colors, from Ado Hasanovic, and one sentence struck me quite a bit in there which was from one man saying that, once you realize that this is the Balkans, you will understand everything. And I mean, of course, also the documentary was making a lot of references regarding the past of the country, the war and the region in general. And then I was thinking, is there space then here as well for cooperation among the Balkan states? And can the queer community be a driver for this collaboration, finding a common ground for human rights?
1: I love that you shared the comment from Ada's documentary, this sentence, because we um, recently organized a party that was a viewing party of the Eurosong competition for the finale. In the end, there were so many people also, because there were a lot of... Um, a lot of young queer people, of course, locally queer people, but also so many tourists who wanted to kind of be there. And um, at the end of the night, so many people from, from Bosnia had some and the local community was rooting for uh, the Serbian representative. And then I think we saw the situation wherever there was a tourist, there There were at least two or three local queer people explaining why everybody's now cheering for Serbia. So I think it's uh, in a a way, I mean, the the relationships are, are very complex, of course, and there's always a lot of tension and a lot of nationalism that is present in the public discourse, but it is being constantly reproduced by one source only and that is uh, the political elites that have a very high stake in, in keeping a high level of nationalism alive. Unfortunately, a lot of people, whether they they were really scarred by the war and traumatized, still might be very prone to these um, these narratives and uh, some other people for some other reasons. But I think that there's this also undercurrent that was always present, that... People throughout Balkans are connected in a way, and some are connected by joint uh, cultural experiences that we had part of one state. Others by uh, sharing the same language, and there are so many many things that connect us. I think it's important to remember that if you look at Serbia and also in Bosnia and Herzegovina, a lot of people who were in the in the queer and LGBTI movement, we're also part of the peace building movement. We still, for example, have one amazing organization in Priedor that is at the same time working with and for the LGBTIQ community locally and who are organizing of the White Arm Band Day that is actually going to take place on the 31st of May. So it's, there was always this, I think, combination of values where there was, of course, important to connect people in terms of, Uh, reconciliation but honest reconciliation uh not based on on kind of trying to pretend that nothing happened but really addressing the war and and especially war crimes uh that took place and um, yeah generally there there are some kind of more let's say things that are really important in our lives that we forget for example whenever i go to belgrade and i know this is an experience of so many people who also come to Sarajevo, they feel like, you know, we feel like we're home. That doesn't mean that we're blind to kind of political relations and political realities. And of course, the history of, of the world that happened. The first pride that I went to was in Zagreb, in Croatia. I went to uh, prides in, in, in Belgrade. I was uh, actually wanted to go, but I never, never went to prides in Podgorica and in Skopje. But this was, I, I think, the most kind of normal and knee-jerk reaction is that, you know, when, whenever there's a pride in the region, you go. And this is what happened also for Sarajevo pride. So many people from Montenegro, from Serbia, from, from Croatia, uh, from uh, Macedonia, they, they all came to, to Sarajevo for the first pride. And, of course, they keep coming to kind of give
0: support. And I think this amount of people coming together is something very beautiful in the sense that pride is not a one country matter because at the end it's targeting a global challenge for human rights and LGBTQI plus people. So I think it's very empowering to see the most people with the most different cultural background which can come together for... For this one challenge at the end,
1: yeah, and it's always good to to give and receive support, as you said. It's not limited to nationality or or some other kind of of division.
0: Mm-hmm. And also to see what is happening in other countries, how they how they are dealing with it. Uh, but to finish with, I mean, I want to ask you something uh, that we do every time in this podcast, which is to ask you for a recommendation of a piece of art or literature, music, that you would recommend us in order to take the reflection further, what would you think of?
1: Oh, this is, this is a tough one. I have, I have so many, but yeah, some, somehow because I prefer reading, if I would recommend a book, I would actually recommend a publication that we published almost 10 years ago is a kind of a dictionary of LGBT culture and I think LGBT culture is something that has a very strong potential to make you think about generally the so many things that we take for granted and also the culture itself LGBT culture queer culture is a place of resistance but also happiness in in a way so maybe this will be an inspiration for someone and maybe 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 a movie it's a documentary that again i think uh we we showed on one of our festivals Uh, and it's about this uh queer woman uh, a lesbian woman and, and her mother and it talks about how her mother kind of accepted her for who she is and how she understood the complexities of uh, queer identities. And it's just a, a documentary that is full of love and full of support, which I think we need need in these times. These are the two recommendations.
0: Amina, thank you very much. I will definitely check out your recommendation. I'm very looking forward to to get this new knowledge and output. And again, thanks so much for sharing your experience and insights on, on this topic.
1: No, thank you for, for inviting me to, to talk about this. I mean, there are also so many people who can tell you a lot more. So I hopefully a lot of other queer voices are heard from and Herzegovina.
0: For sure, for sure. It's always, I mean, very important to hear from the people and leave space for them, actually, because I would say that is still something which might be missing in the public discourse sometime, sadly. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: But Pride March is happening, I believe, on the 25th of June in Sarajevo this time. So yes. I would say if you're around, <laughs> jump in the, the parade. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, in Vienna, it will be happening on the 11th of, of June. Anyway, happy Pride Month to, to everybody as it's at least in Austria, I don't know, for, for Bosnia and Herzegovina starting on, on the 1st of, of June.
1: Yeah, same same here. And this June is going to be filled with so many uh, events and activities. And I'm really, yeah, it, this is going to be really mm-hmm. a really bright mo- month in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina as well. All throughout the country, not just in Sarajevo, which I'm happy about.
0: Amazing. Very looking forward to share this happy moment of celebration of freedom, I would say. Yes. Definitely. And uh, for the listeners, you will find all recommendations for this episode in the description. If you enjoy listening, please subscribe to our podcast and feel free to give us some feedback. Thanks again so much, Emina, for joining. And until next time. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. So, you enjoyed this podcast? Then tune into another CEE episode and subscribe to the IDM podcast series on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Acast, or elsewhere you get your podcast. And also have a look at the rest of our work on our website www.idm.at. For any feedback or podcast collaboration, feel free to contact me at idm.at. The email is in the description below. This was CEE Central Europe Explained, a podcast series produced by the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe, powered by Erster Group. With the ongoing participation of Daniela Paiden, Marvin Atalik, Daniel Martinek, and Sebastian Schaeffer. Production and editing, Emma Hunterberry, Proofreading, Jack Gill, IDM Podcast, Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa, Institute for the
1: Danube Region and Central Europe, European Perspectives, Regional Actions, Cooperation and Expertise since 1953.